0: Anna Subri Gina Miller, welcome to Tell a Friend. For the first question, let me just ask you: How have you both been doing over this, you know, crazy period, and how how are you surviving this
1: lockdown? I mean, I I mean, I went into um, into a sort of lockdown, self isolation back in December of 2019, when I lost my seat, of course. Um, but in in all seriousness, it was. I think the first part of it all, I found, in a way, I I, I quite enjoyed it. And I know that that is a very difficult thing to say, because for so many people, this has been just a terrible nightmare, especially those working in the NHS. But for me, I, for the first time in my life, um, didn't work. And I was at home and I had um, my daughter and my partner's daughter there. And I cooked and I gardened. I'm a passionate gardener. And I had a lot of chance, a lot of chances to do a lot of thinking about what had happened in the previous four or five years, actually, um, as well as the enjoyment of being at home, being with family, uh, and as I say, doing a great passion of mine, which is gardening. I found the second lockdown, I think, like a lot of people in November, much much harder. Even though by then I was doing a bit of work, um, I was going one day a week. I was going up to Leeds to do some television. Which I enjoyed enormously but I found it very difficult, very difficult and I think a lot of people are just weary now with the whole thing and I think I'm really frightened about how we're ever going to get out of it.
0: And What about you Gina, how's your experience been?
2: Well it, it's again going to sound odd <laughs> but when the first lockdown came my family and I had a sort of sense of relief and the reason for that is that we'd spent the sort of last three years more or less in lockdown in our home because for the first two years we were looked after by the terrorist squad we weren't going out anywhere um you know i was uh, i had a legitimate reason for wearing a disguise for you know putting on a cap and my my jogging stuff and sunglasses and going out because everybody else was doing it and people were preoccupied with the pandemic so there was a noticeable decrease in the amount of abuse i was getting and threats etc and even you know the the police and the squads looking after me said gina wow, you know, it's literally gone almost. Um, I mean, it, it, it came back, but that first lockdown was actually quite a relief for us. We were, um, we felt that uh, people were distracted, that we weren't something, you know, I wasn't something that anyone would uh, take notice of. So we went out as a family, we did our daily walks with lots of other people. It, it, it gave us a sense of relief, which, you know, because suddenly, we weren't the only ones in lockdown we'd spent three years becoming a simulator to living like that so we had already discovered um you know playing games and having routines indoors and you know we had already developed a different way of living as a family because we were so restricted so it wasn't that much of a change for us the first lockdown um but the second lockdown was different because i was recovering from from my illness um I, i got covid and i was recovering from that um, and I was really concerned about my youngest daughter, who has asthma and an impaired, very impaired immune system. So we were, you know, shielding her and making sure that because, of course, they were going to school. So she only went to school for three weeks, and then I pulled her out. So she, we were all then back at home. Um, and as Anna says, and I totally agree with, I think this time is very different. People are, we're, the, the the spirit is much lower. We we are feeling mm-hmm. as exhausted emotionally and intellectually as the NHS and the entire nation, because we can't see a plan, we can't see a lay- way out. And it's, it's that, you know, the long road ahead without, you know, we keep, they keep talking about the tunnel, but the light keeps being further and further away when we think we're being told, you know, it's coming towards us. Actually, the further we walk down the tunnel, the further it seems to be. So I think, like many people, we just want a day when we can get a few freedoms back and be able to see friends and family. And that's where I think many of us are now.
0: And you know if we look globally at the way the different governments have dealt with the pandemic, we've seen you know there's clearly been you know successes as we've seen in New Zealand. But Anna, let me start with you and ask you, what has been your assessment of the government's handling? Uh, you know, many of the people who are in charge now are your former colleagues. You know, what's your take on all of this?
1: Well, I think at the beginning there was an overwhelming sense of whatever your own political views were, that you wanted the government obviously to succeed. And I certainly felt that people who were you know, quite vehemently opposed to the government um, took the view that we put all that to one side. And I know I certainly. Uh, and colleagues that i was still in touch with from all political parties who were no longer involved in Parliament, took that view, is that we, we all have to get behind the government. God, we want them to succeed desperately. And so I think you'll see, I think history will record this, you very little criticism at the, at, the, at the beginning, even though there was a lot of concern. And some of us had expressed the concern that we didn't go into the lockdown soon enough, that we didn't believe the Prime Minister had taken it seriously enough, they were still doing, if you like, the great big lap of honour, having won the general election, so convincingly. Um, and that by February, it's actually, you know, it's difficult to believe, nearly a year ago, they just didn't take it seriously enough. But in any event, um, we all got behind them. And then I think that almost a slow unravelling occurred. And then by the time, and, and there was growing concern, but they were, the government was always behind the curve. And also constantly over-promising and under-delivering. One of the great rules of politics is you always under-promise and then you over-deliver. You never, especially in something with so many unknowns as this pandemic has, remember, you don't do what Boris Johnson did. You don't say, oh, in 12 weeks' time, we'll have it cracked. Uh, you don't say, we'll be fine by Christmas. You you don't then say, oh, it'll be all right by Easter. All that this has happened all the way through it. But the big change was when Dominic Cummings took his test up to Durham and the government failed then to sack him. They stood by him. I think that was a really important moment. I think politically and amongst the public at large, people who'd made so many sacrifices were so appalled we are now taking the consequences of that because there's been I just think people are fed up with the government they don't believe a lot of what they say and we're storing up more difficulties to come so in terms of the actual going into the lockdowns the, the overpromising, I think the government's handled it very badly the good news is I think the vaccination plan seems to be going very well uh, and that is partly of course due to the government Uh, and the buying of the vaccines. That was driven by those that they brought in, Kate Bingham, I think, being one of those. But it's also, of course, overwhelmingly due to the NHS. And I've got lots of friends who work in the NHS uh, and say to me that to be in vaccine clinics, as many of my friends are, delivering those vaccines is just the most wonderful, joyous thing. Uh, And to have people that you know who are getting them again is great. And I think so far, fingers crossed,
0: we're on track and Gina in times like this um, the opposition comes under you know just as much scrutiny as the government of the day how have you been uh, or rather what has been your assessment of the opposition and how the opposition has been holding the account uh, the government to account
2: I think that it was right for the opposition to get behind and work along with the government we had to put politics aside in this pandemic it was about everyone working together because uh, you know it is a time of crisis and everybody is affected and we all have to pull together as in all times of crisis of national crisis so i think it is absolutely right that all the political leaders of all the political parties work together and don't score political points at this time in our history and in our in, in our nation's health and um and in this time of pandemic. But one of the things I I do think is that you can do two things. You can hold the government to account while still supporting the overall uh, direction of travel. And I think as things have gone on and we have seen that the government has been late to the table in taking certain um, decisions, some of the decisions it's taken on PPE, on looking down on awarding um, contracts. You know, these are questions that yes, you can still ask. And I know there will be a time, hoping there'll be a time when there'll be a look back and we will ensure that uh, protocols are put in place. So these things do not happen again, if we ever are in a situation of another pandemic or a national crisis. But I think um, sometimes I wondered, whether there was a bit of um, uh, lackluster in the way the government was being held to account, because there was too much in my view Political campaigning language being used by the government when it was talking about the pandemic. It was almost as though they were still in campaigning mode for an election, mm. and there were, you know, some of the language about the war imagery and the, you know, taking back. There was a there was a narrative that was underlying the pandemic, and when the government used, which I think was totally unnecessary, and actually has created divisions in the public and also some of the mistrust that it that we're seeing because they haven't spoken with this sort of authenticity at this time of crisis. There is still a political undertone to this, which I think is unfortunate. And that has hindered the the opposition in coming alongside the government because they've had to react to that political undertone rather than putting politics aside and talking about the, nation, the health of the nation and people's lives. And I mean, one of the thing, most extraordinary things that we can never walk away from is our death toll is about to hit 100,000 yeah. in the next few days. That is the worst in the world. And you yeah. cannot walk away from the fact that our government did not safeguard the vulnerable, the elderly in society soon enough the experts were calling, the NHS was calling, my entire family of medics, the GPs were calling for it. Everyone could see, even my children could see, you know, teenagers, people could see that the government needed to do more to safeguard the vulnerable in society earlier. And they didn't. I agree with Anna that the rollout of the vaccine is a triumph. I think it shows foresight, it does show planning, but a lot of that is not just for the government, is not the the, the accolades of congratulations and not just for the government it is our nhs we have the most extraordinary nhs my brother my sister the 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 teams they're working 24 7 they are doing all their days off they're working the junior Mm. doctors my nephew they are on the wards doing things they're not really trained to do they've put aside all their training they are just doing vaccines at the moment it is truly extraordinary the way the nhs has stepped up at this time to deliver the vaccinations but i say we have to congratulate the government for securing the vaccinations and for actually the way that they actually got them through the licensing system because that is something that we've managed to do better than most countries as well so you have to congratulate them where congratulate where where they've done things that are extraordinarily positive but at the same time it doesn't negate the death toll that we've seen no
1: absolutely right Um, can i just just give some evidence to support Gina's um, argument there, which I think is so important. I think she's absolutely right about this awful undertone of political language that the government's engaged, well, notably the prime minister has engaged in throughout all of this. And that's in sharp contrast to Nicola Sturgeon. So in Scotland, their, their rates of infection of death are no better, sadly, than in England and in Wales. In Wales, in fact, we seems to have an even more acute problem, but in any event. And yet Nic- Nicola Sturgeon's standing is extraordinarily high with the Scottish people, and I think amongst Eng- English and Welsh people as well. And the reason for that is not because she's particularly handled the pandemic better, It's the way that she's conducted herself, and she's led her people, and I'm no supporter of the SNP, but I give credit where it's due, and it's because of the language that she's used, the honesty that she's shown, and her empathy with ordinary people, and she is the most astute of all politicians, she doesn't do and say anything that isn't political, and to her political advantage actually, but she has handled herself magnificently. She's got huge trust from the Scottish people and rightly so in sharp contrast to where we see our Prime Minister and that's just the evidence if you like I think that completely supports the argument that Gina's just made about the language and the conduct. We still see it of course don't we Gina in this you know, but the,
2: the, the, the it, is, it is quite extraordinary because the other thing that I don't think the government have learned, basing, bearing in mind they have all these experts and advisors and, you know, the, the, the external third parties they brought in to bolster the way they communicate, what I don't understand is they haven't seemed to figure out something very basic, which is you answer a question. It's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. When they're asked on TV, you know, how can you build trust if you never actually ever answer a question and what you do is you you sort of give a, a you know an alphabet soup of, a, of an answer to everything you ever asked because that does not build trust with people you know if yeah. you it doesn't matter what the message is you have to answer questions that people are asking and journalists and media ask them on behalf of us as the public and so to give sort of Pre, you know, digest. You just just put out this this diatribe, which they do on a regular basis, does not build trust. So whatever, there seems to be um, a reluctance, or somehow they don't have the the confidence to speak honestly and straight to the public. And that is that is a sign of a government who I think is pretty nervous and is not confident in itself. And that doesn't bode well, as we need to then come out. Because i think a lot of us are now yes we can see some light i talked at the end of the tunnel but how do we deal with the aftermath of this how do we deal with the social and economic consequences of the twin headwinds of covid and brexit i'm sure we'll come on to that but both of those together when you've got a government that doesn't have the confidence to be honest with the public and to be straight talking and that's where i am at the moment i'm thinking where is that going to come from? They have got to learn a different way of communicating with the public.
0: And talking about the government I think handling, um, Anna, I'd love to ask you this, You know, your former colleague, Boris Johnson, is now leading the country. Is he really up for the job, up to the job?
1: No, I, I, don't, I don't think he is. And I think we've seen that. You see, the trouble is with John Boris Johnson is, and I think people are waking up to this big time, and it's all about him uh, we know he's prepared to pretty much say anything for his own advantage uh, and for his own advancement we know that from for example in brexit where he didn't know whether to back remain or back leave and came down for leave because it was thought he thought it was more um, for his future co- uh, career prospects that was the better thing to do not because he believed it more than he believed in remain but it's, it's not, that's bad enough um, but it's also this, and it comes back to what we've just been talking about, this appalling messaging, is he has shown that he doesn't like giving out bad news. And he doesn't like having to make difficult decisions, which might not mean that people think he's the great I am, which is all he wants is people to think he's wonderful and, and adore him and, and, uh, and, um, and fall at his feet and it's been a real problem this inability to square up you know to Gina says, to answer the questions i mean some of them can't answer the questions though, because they're just such a he's got such a bad bunch of people around him the big mistake not bringing in some of the big beasts who had big experience in government but keeping them on the backbenches or chairs of select committees a big mistake and he should have brought in people from other parties as well who've got no political skin in the game that's another matter but Johnson's really been found, found out I think in all of this and it's it, the mark of a great leader is to take you through the, sh- the I nearly said shitty but <laughs> the really bad difficulty but it is you know that's what marked Churchill out as a great leader it wasn't because he came out with fiery language and said we'll fight him on the beaches it was because he was straight with people when he said this is our darkest hour we now need all to come together. It's going to be really rough and awful. And this is what I'm going to ask of you. And, and Johnson can't do that because he just wants to be loved.
0: And Gina, as you um, alluded to just a second ago, you know, if the pandemic isn't bad enough, we've, you know, also been trying to navigate our way, you know, with the result of the EU referendum trying to deal with Brexit. And you know now we've left the single market and the customs union, and I wanted to ask you: Do you have any faith for Britain's post-EU future?
2: No, for three reasons. One is um, the leadership we have. Just to echo what Anna has said, is that I think Johnson is—he has a thin skin because he reacts with vengeance when people uh, c- cross him as he sees it rather than seeing it as people can have a different view and actually you get better decisions when you have people from all spheres of life talking in a prismatic way which actually end up with you end up with much better uh, decisions and strategies but he is too thin skinned to allow those people around the table so he has chosen people who are you know um, nodding heads and uh, he's chosen them their ideology rather than their intellect and I think that will be something that is a very poor um, uh, mark of his government and does not bode well for what we have to face because what you have to do that I was going to say the second thing that they have to do is decide what they want to do with the freedoms that they've got supposedly you know we we're going to be free this is a free and I have no confidence that they have any idea what to do with it they're making it up as they go along um and you know that is not strategic thinking and if you think like that what happens is you build foundations that are so thin they crack every time there's a crisis and I think that's what we'll see because and then the third thing is the deal that he so triumphs is possibly the worst deal of any negotiation theme i mean brexit is not over we're going to be negotiating and negotiating for years to come and there's so many red flags and so many points of dispute in that agreement that uh, you know we we the gov- the government has not secured the prosperity, uh, actually, and the security of our country. What they've done is they've pushed it into a uh, a stream where there are going to be lots and lots of uh, pebbles thrown in. There are going to be lots of of waves coming. You know, there is no certainty, and you know we're going to be coming out at a time where we're going to come out of the pandemic when we're also going to see the true effects of Brexit because we have not seen anything yet. You know, we have, got a, we have got a society and an economy in lockdown. How can we possibly know what the effects of Brexit are yet? It will be, we are yet to see what will happen to all the sectors. And I mean, in my particular sector, obviously, I, I work in financial services and we have no idea at all what it is we're supposed to be doing. I mean, on a daily basis, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing on my European clients. I, we have no idea, absolutely no idea. For an 80% economy built on services to not have any certainty in an agreement is a dereliction of duty and is actually a political failure. So I do not hold out uh, much uh, hope that this particular government under Boris Johnson Will get us to a better place, or the place we need to be in two, three, four,
1: however many years' time.
0: And Anna, do you want to come in on this? What, what, what's your take on all
1: of this? I, I, what, what I can't add anything to that because she's Gina's absolutely right, and I think that point she makes about you know the moment we actually we have got some idea about the effects of Brexit, and the, um, because we are seeing some examples, not just in fishing, but in, I, I have to say more importantly. Um, the obviously the very important point about eight percent of our economy is services. The same agreement on services, but we're now beginning to see all those delays. We're seeing the extra charges. We're seeing the effects in Northern Ireland. The problem, I think, is that we have. Do I have two problems? Um, I think we have a, a public that is just got was so fed up with Brexit. They will they would have taken anything. So you know the, as much as journalists are doing a job. And I have great criticisms of too many of our journalists for not doing a proper job on Brexit. Um, but the stories, if you look at the stories at the moment, they're very much tucked away in the back pages. They're very much down the running order if they're even there on any the, of the uh, news channels. And so, yeah, for the public, it's, I think they will, they will begin to feel it, but they still won't, begin to question in the way that I think Gina and I would both like them to question the wisdom of where we are and where we go next. The other problem we have, and I have to say this because I I like Keir Starmer a great deal as a person, and I like him, as I say, a lot, but we have a very big problem with our opposition because the one thing they do not want to do is talk about Brexit, and that means they are not, in my opinion, challenging and have not, maybe they will uh, in the coming months, maybe they will realize how important it is that they stand up and speak out as the realities unfold. But at the moment, you know, they voted for that deal, which I thought was quite extraordinary. And if I'd been in Parliament, you can bet your bottom dollar I wouldn't have voted for it, um, because I couldn't vote for something that was as badly flawed as Gina has explained. Um, so those are, I think, our two problems. Tired, a tired, battered public on Brexit, and secondly, an opposition has yet to find its feet on this subject and do its job of holding the government to account.
0: I'll get back. Okay, to can, I that. To,
2: can I add to that as well? The fact that I don't know how the fates conspired in this way, but I think we also—I don't know if Anna agrees—but we also have a very inexperienced and young parliament, and what they um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, it's not just Brexit, it's not just a pandemic. But if you look. At the legislation that this government is pushing through Parliament, and tucked away the clauses that have tucked away in it, and the in those in that legislation, which is basically diminishing Parliament's sovereignty and do, and the ability to scrutinise the government. And yet, when they're highlighted, they they don't raise them; they're they're letting them through. And what has happened over the last few um, well, since this government has come in and we've gone into the pandemic is that uh, you know. The, Parliament is voting to silence itself and it's extraordinarily worrying when you go forward and we are yet to see the fixed term act that's going to be repealed and we've got other acts here, and I'm very, very concerned that we will find ourselves in a place um, towards the end of this year where parliamentarians haven't got the ability to scrutinize the government because they've voted these things through rather than uh, really forcing the government to amend particular clauses in particular legislation and I, I and i think it's unfortunate that we have an inexperienced government which plays to anna's point earlier that you know bringing back some of the big big guns as she called it but you know it was about it should have been about the competency of a cabinet and a government and not about this ideological well, how did you vote I mean it, it is quite shameful some of the ways I, I've not been a conservative voter but I still think it's shameful how some of the really uh, uh, people who have act who have real integrity and experience in the conservative government have been sidelined by Boris Johnson
1: yes. So can I just absolutely agree on this? Obviously, we agree, you know, We fall over each other in agreement, which is not no bad thing. Uh, but you're right. Um, it's a very real problem that Johnson has. Is that he's surrounded by sycophants and second raters, and, and I wish that weren't the case, but it's true. Um, and some of the there are some good people on the back benches um, of the, and Conservative back benches, um, or they are chairs of select committees like Greg Clark, like Jeremy Hunt. The trick now is whether Johnson is going to have the sense to bring on these, bring these people where he needs them back into the heart of government. Uh, but there, are, um, there is a paucity of talent on the Conservative back because so many good people simply left the party or got stung out. The second point, is if you look at the Labour benches, I think what Keir Starmer's now got to do, he's got to beef up his shadow cabinet. There's a lot of talent there, but there's a lot of talent still on his back that he needs to bring forward because we need their big, strong voices. You know, I, we need Hillary Benn. I, I, we need Yvette Cooper. And I know that they chair select committee, but I think Keir needs people like that in his cabinet. You know, People like Margaret Beckett. These are people of real ability and talent. And yes, it's great to have young, new voices. terribly important to bring on the new talent, but in a crisis in particular you meet people with all that real experience and their feet so grounded because they have that experience and courage. And in it. a moment
0: like this would you say that Keir Starmer is leading a party or is he really being led by the Prime Minister?
1: Who's that to me?
0: Yes to you Anna.
1: Well no I think Keir is, I think Starmer still has his big test on sorting out his party and yes he's he's done the right thing on anti-semitism, he's done the right thing on Jeremy Corbyn, we're going to see now in the new year what now happens with Jeremy Corbyn and whether he's actually suspended permanently from the Labour Party which would be hugely significant. He's got to drive out the anti-semites in my view but he's also got to reform his party right down to the branch, to the constituency level as well um, and until he roots out the Corbynites from the constituency parties, and so he has candidates who support more of his agenda, and he, and he, and he has shifted the Labour Party more towards the centre ground, he won't have completed his task. But he's, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, he's boring and all the rest of it, he's not very, well, actually, I think he's the perfect antidote that we need for, for, compared to Johnson, because Starmer's bright, he does detail, he's calm, he's, he's a thoroughly safe pair of hands. It's interesting because um,
2: I actually um, was very involved with the Labour Party. I mean, I, I wrote some of the manifesto in 2015 on uh, pension reform. I worked with the two Eds, as I call them. Um, and so, But I left the party because my husband is Jewish. You know, my mother-in-law, my wonderful mother-in-law is Jewish. I mean, you know, my and so I left when the first report was being written because I knew it was going to be a, a whitewash. So I, I'm afraid I left the party because of the racism and the anti-Semitism that was happening in there. And and Keir has taken on a broken party and he has an awful lot to do to bring it back to a, a party that really represents the roots of labor and what Labour party, the Labor Party stands for. And that will take time. Um, but I do agree, he is a perfect antidote to somebody who l- believes that you shouldn't read the detail. I mean, I'm told that Johnson hasn't actually ever read the rit- withdrawal agreement. Um, and he no- apparently he knows what's in it, but he's never read it. Um, but you know, so, so he's, you know, you've got a somebody who not only is a master of detail, at, uh, was also a, a prominent and a very, very respect, highly respected lawyer who understands human rights, because I do think as a country, we've let ourselves down in the way we've conducted ourselves in in, in terms of human rights, both domestically and internationally. Um, but, you know, he, he has a lot to do. Um, and politics, unfortunately, not just in the UK, but I think we've seen this around the world, and it's really interesting. I'm sure we will come on to the US. But, you know, it's not about the most flamboyant leader. It's not about being... A showman. You actually, we politicians have got to be competent and have courage. Those are the two greatest, Mm -hmm. um, the two greatest um, uh, strengths we need in our politicians in this age of the rise of populism. And I think Keir has those qualities, but he does have a party, and he has a lot of work to do to bring the party together and to look at the structures within the party that need reforming. Um, so we have to wait to see what happens in the next few months. But I also agree that I, I think with Anna, as she said before, we'll fall over each other agreeing, but there are talents on both backbenches that need to be brought to the fore because we have to have people, now I believe what is, what is the most important trait for politicians to have is courage. Courage to speak the truth. In a in a in a landscape where lies are being believed too easily, and so we have to have politicians with courage. But
0: then, if I mm-hmm. I, if I backtrack to a point that Anna just made uh, short uh, a second ago about this collective you know sense of fatigue that everyone's got, whether it comes to Brexit or just politics in general, people are tired of it, and if we look at the deep political divides that have been in our country since 2016, and how that was, you know, kind of a pivotal year in separating the country into many different, you know, factions. Would you say that the pandemic has actually brought us together? Or do you think those divides are still bubbling under the surface? Anna, should we start with you?
1: Um, I think some of those divides are still bubbling under the surface. I think that's true. Um, as you, I'm, I'm sure we both agree that one of the great things about certainly the first lockdown was that wonderful sense of na- the nation coming together and, you know, the, the clapping on the Thursday night actually was, I was hugely symbolic of that. And and so on, but um, I think those divisions are not as great, but there is still too much divide. And I, but I think that what will happen is, well, I hope it happens you know, because history tells us that what does happen after every great crisis, it's usually a war, is that there are big, then huge changes and a thirst for change. And I hope we see that. And part of that, for me, will be in the inevitable inquiry, which has got to begin, in my view, and it's got to start to conclude before the next general election, is, as Gina identified, why have we got the highest death toll in the whole world? And it's not just the incompetence of this government, there are some underlying deep, and they've been there a very long time. and it comes down to these huge divides that we do have in our country, which are not political, the other great divides between the haves and the have-nots. and we know that if you are you'm glad to use the word poor for some reason I don't understand if you are poor, not just economically poor, but poor in so many other ways. Your health outcomes are worse than somebody who enjoys the sort of privileges that Gina and I obviously do. And that is a fact. And no government has ever really tackled that. And that is one of the biggest challenges that must now be tackled to eradicate poverty in our country and make sure that it should not matter where you're born or what family circumstances you're born into should not affect your health outcomes including the longevity of your life and the quality of your life.
0: And a lot of these divides that we're talking about, um, you know, we've seen them play out and really be exacerbated by politicians themselves who, you know, haven't been very civil in the way that they, you know, speak about one another and, you know, about the way that the media reports on all of this. And Gina, I wanted to ask you, you know, this this week we saw, you know, the end of the Trump reign, if you like. Uh, So in this new post-Trump world, do you think civility will you know, restore in politics again?
2: I think we're at a, a, a fork in, our, in the road. And I think we can take, it. it's, it's going to go either way. Um, I think the Biden-Harris win in, in the US has done more to halt a direction of travel, not just in the US, but actually across the globe. Because if you think back to the G20 and that photograph of all the strongmen who were there and they were majority men, across the world who were going down a political ideology, political ideology, um, they, you know, Trump going has actually dented that rise of populism around the world and the strong man. So the, 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 what it's shown is, you can, we can come back to our senses almost is what the American win has shown us, but it's not going to be easy. And I think the reason I say there's a fork in the road is I think what is, to my mind, what has happened over the last four to six years Um, Actually, it's longer than that, is that politicians realized that they could, by othering, both politically and also within domestic policy making, but also internationally, they could actually hide their failures and and stay in power. So what you did is you created um, uh, little tribal enemies, one against the other. And by doing that and by deflecting their failures and deflecting problems onto groups, it meant that they could get away with policy deficits. And the result of that is, we have really deep-seated divisions and misunderstandings about our society that that are now being passed down from generation to generation on immigration, on women, on race, and uh, on, on equality, on social mobility, all these issues that mean that there are entrenched beliefs in our society that will take time to reverse. And unless our politicians and our business leaders and our civic voices, because it's got to be everybody, comes together in my mind and takes the other route, which is this is an opportunity for us to talk about what makes us the same, to talk about how we build things together, how we change our language, how we change our view of our country, of each other, of the world of climate change, of the risks that are facing us and talk about how it affects all of us, we're really not going to be able to really mend those divisions in our society. And what I'm fearful of is that it's a, if you have a weak uh, governments who are not confident, they will run to the quickest solution because actually to, to repair something from the foundations upwards, takes real commitment and resources and intelligence and emotional and intellectual intelligence to really make long-term solutions to the problems we have. And I'm fearful that we don't have those great minds and hearts and empathetic individuals in places of power. And I'm talking about across society, not just in politics. You know, because for me, one of the things I've been talking about for years now is the whole idea of responsible capitalism. This aggressive pursuit of profit is something that has damaged us. But there are positive lights here because through COVID, we have seen that people want businesses to behave differently, they want um, uh, society to be different, they want value of those who work in society to be looked at again. So there are opportunities here, but there's also a threat, because finally the threat is, if the politicians have to come out of this and repair quickly, will they run to what I call survivalist economics, which is, you know, what we do is we lower our, our um, AML checks, we let in more dark money, we don't, we do trade deals, forget about the morals of the trade deals we're going to do, you know, it's about how do we make things look as though we're, we're bouncing back quickly, and forget about the moral undertones of well, how we do that. So there are real dangers lurking amongst the sort of light that we can see in the future, and I'm really hoping that we go towards the light, not the dark, but it, it's it's a complicated picture, and I think it's going to take Real commitment from all walks of society for us to end up in a better place.
0: But then, if we if we backtrack to you know, okay, what you can't say 2016 was the beginning of it, but it was certainly um, you know a pivotal year in you know driving this dark tone in politics. And both of you fell victim to you know a lot of these divides. You were both framed as you know enemies of the people. You were you know vilified by the press and in the public. And Anna, if I start with you, I just want to understand, what is that experience like being a, a public figure, being a politician as you were, and also trying to navigate you know, your own mental health and your sanity as you're getting this barrage of hate and you know, being made into a villain, what's that like?
1: Well, I think, I mean, I was very lucky that, of course, I had a uh, team, as all MPs do, who you know, read the emails and uh, the letters before you do. And a lot of them, actually, I never read uh, until I asked to read them. And I, I, I feel very passionately that it is quite disgraceful that in all of this, we forget that it was members of staff who often had to read these horrible things. Um, and yet, we, you know, I know that Parliament did say warm words about this, but in all the awfulness, it was often forgotten. So a lot of it, I never actually saw. And then I did ask to see it at one particular point when things were very, very bad in the summer of 2018. And, and it was printed out page after page after page after page. And I was, I was quite shaken by it. I mean, I, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, didn't, I had not appreciated just how atrocious it was. Um, and as I say, it, sh- it shook me. And I I printed off copies, I gave them to every single um, senior reporter of, of all the main newspapers and broadcasts. And it was just, I'm not saying they shrugged their shoulders, but it was just sort of, oh, well, there you are, you see, you know, had a referendum and you don't believe in Brexit and you've spoken out. And it was this kind of attitude of, well, yeah. You know, what do you expect? You deserve You're it. Getting what you deserve. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. I mean, my I had actually got conservative councils in my own constituency. Who actually, said in public. Well, she just, this is this is after the. The time when I was walking into the House of Commons, which I think there was a bit of a sea change then when I'd been called a Nazi, I was getting a bit hacked off for that, and then I was you know, had this swarm of disgusting people around me, and that actually made the front page. It made the lead in 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 the, in the news uh, programmes as well. But my own Conservative councillor said in public, "Well, what does she expect? What does she deserves?" And I'm afraid that was the attitude. Now, in a way, their attitude actually bolstered me in a way to say. How dare you say such an outrageous thing? And I, I will not flinch from what I'm doing. And of course, I was very, very lucky in the partner that I have, even though he received a death threat, uh, support from family, friends, and all the rest of it, which are hugely important. Um, and so, in in many, it, it did. It must have got to me, and there were times when it did. I actually think, subsequently, when I was talking about through the the first lockdown, digging my garden, I would almost get flashbacks to things. And I'm blessed that I do have a great garden that I can dig because for me, that has been a huge part of keeping me sane at the time and then subsequently. But I think once we were out, and I've talked to some of my other colleagues about this, we did then find actually a lot of these demons came out of the box for us. But for Gina, of course, I think it's worse because I was surrounded by, as I say, I had my staff, I had political colleagues, but you had nobody apart from your family. I and mean, of course you had lots of people who supported you, but you didn't have the shield I think that I had, Gina. And you no, had I, okay. a, I, mean, I didn't have members of the terrorist squad, for Christ's sake. No, but the, 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 whole, the, the thing was, I, I didn't
2: expect any of it because when I, when I brought the my, my first case, I thought naively, I thought everybody will understand that this is about sovereignty, and that uh, you know it doesn't matter how people voted, people will get behind me. And so I I, I remember having a, a conversation with the legal team and saying and them saying, but you know, Gina, you're going to be on your own because it was, I wasn't supposed to be on my own. I it was going to be three of us, and we wouldn't be named as as in. Indiv- and then the courts turned around and said, actually, if you if we give you permission, you have to have we have to have a name that will be able to go into the public domain. And the other mm-hmm. two men. Um, who were very high profile compared to me sort of said no they couldn't and I and I said to the legal team I said you know what it'll be okay I said we'll launch a case with my name but lots of people will realize how important this is and they'll put their you know their supporters be it politicians uh, academics you know business people so I never ever envisaged it was just going to be me so so there I am, I go to court, I do this case. But then I just didn't expect the barrage that came. And within three weeks, everything changed. I mean, my entire life changed. So my children, my family, because... I did not. Ex- I expected. I mean, I'm not naive enough to to know. To I knew who some of the elements who were in the media and on social media in particular, um, and certain publications. I knew that being a woman of color, the way I speak, I knew I was the perfect avatar, if you like, for them. You know, I gave them everything they needed to 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 make me this sort of you know doll of hate, as they one um, editor of a magazine of a newspaper told me. Um, but, so I expected that. What I didn't expect was what then came next was this idea that, as a woman of color, I didn't have the right to speak up, that I couldn't possibly be bright enough, so I must have you know dark money and other people behind me who are telling me what to do and funding cool. me. so it couldn't be me. Um, and yeah, the, and then this thing about and then the whole immigrant thing, that I, I was an immigrant, so therefore immigrants shouldn't shouldn't ever interfere. So if you think about it, all of those things that I was getting, I just thought, and Anna is absolutely right, it just made me so angry, it actually empowered me even more. I thought, hang on a minute, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be bullied into th- into this, into silence by people who believe these things. So. In, in an odd way they empowered me to carry on the more yeah. vile things got and but then the one thing i couldn't cope with and i found extremely difficult and i did nearly give up um, was my, the threats against my children because when you get letters and emails because it, people presume it's on social media actually you can ignore social media but because i have a company in a business they had an address and I, I don't have, and Anna's right. I didn't have security or anything, else. Like so I had to pay for everything myself. Um, and I, I told my staff not to read things, so everything was being read by me. And we had this process where the squad has given me, you know, gloves and evidence bags and stuff because I was being sent some of the most vile things. Um, and and my husband started reading some of them, and I didn't want him either. So. I decided that I would go through things myself and then get them over and to read, we know where your children go to school. They'll be taken tomorrow. We will cut their heads off and you burn them in front of you. I never knew if that was true or if they really did know where my children lived. So, you know, I I dropped that letter. I said to my husband, we're going home now. We grabbed the children out of school. The The teachers were a bit alarmed and I kept them at home for the rest of the week and just cried every day for about a week, because I didn't know if that was true. I couldn't exactly. tell if they knew. And that's when we then had the alarm system put in and everything, but the the threats against my children, I mean, I, I, it got to a stage where I stopped reading the letters and I just put them in bags and gave them to the police. And they'd come once a week and collect everything. But um, once the first court case was over and uh, the guy who took a bounty out of my head was, was the case happened. My lawyers dropped off at home because I stopped looking at social media as well. They dropped off a box of stuff that they'd gone through to defend me against um, the Viscount. It was three boxes of the most things they'd printed out from social media they'd got from my office. I couldn't believe it. And I was about to open it. My husband said to me, you are not reading that box. We're going outside and burning it. And he made me burn it, but it was, it was that, that was the most, I mean, it got to the point where I was writing letters to the children all day in case I wasn't here. and you know which which led to something I launched during the first lockdown which is a digital platform called messages of love where people can put memory boxes and letters and photographs and wills and letters because you used to have a different message to each child don't you Anna you wouldn't write the same letter to one child that you would to the other no, no, no. you'd say very different things um so but I started doing that I started writing I started planning I have to say the the letters to my husband turned more into instruction manuals for had to be a father and a parent I think <laughs> actually <laughs> letters to him (laughs) but it was but which is comical when I look back on now but that's the way I sort of I I switched to being practical to cope with it so I switched to being to practical mode rather than feeling and it's only over time that I've sort of gotten used to I've let myself feel and go through as Anna says you have those flashbacks and you remember because it's too much at the time I don't think it's humanly possible to deal with it at the time. So you actually shut down and you sort of become almost, you go through the mechanics of, of everything, but you don't really feel what's happening to you because I just don't think you can, And it's, I think, it's too horrendous.
0: As both of you have mentioned, uh, you know, being women in, um, you know, the public eye, obviously that's uh, an in- intensified scrutiny. And we even see, it, um, you know, with you Gina, being a woman of color, how that's another level Onto it, and we see in politics the way that Diane Abbott, Dawn Butler, Theresa May—the scrutiny that they come under—is far harsher, and especially when it's coming from um, the right-wing media, should we say? But would you say that your male colleagues, um, you know, be it the you know the two men that Gina, you were saying, uh, who were with you on that first case, and Anna, your male counterparts in Parliament, would you say they supported you, or do you think, you know? They
1: kind of just left you out there to dry. Anna, uh, I wasn't left. I was left to hang out to dry. No, I mean, I think one of the um, one of the nice things that have happened in the last uh, year is I, I caught up with Dominic Grief just before uh, the lockdown came in. It was about a, a couple of weeks before, and Dominic just he looked about nearly ten years younger, actually. <laughs> And that drained, thin look had gone from his face, and he, people like him, people like Chris Leslie, yeah, there were the, and Chuka, and many of the others, yeah, they were, they were good support. There was far more support from Labour members coming up to me, um, even if they didn't agree with me on Brexit, actually, and saying, "I hope you're okay," and so on and so forth. than I got from it was it was it was a big, it was part of my feeling that the Tory party had completely left me. I know I got a letter from the cabinet from Theresa, actually from, no, it must have been from several, anyway, it doesn't really matter, but I know the cabinet had um, discussed what had happened when I was walking into Parliament, because that was a sort of seminal moment, I suppose. But I mean, all the stuff before that, and even Amber, Amber Radhu, I like it enormously, and I still am in touch with Amber, And when she was Home Secretary, I had asked her a question about the language that, for example, the Daily Mail was using. And even she couldn't come out, felt incapable of coming out and condemning the language being used by that right-wing press against our judges. It's not against me, but against our judges, calling them the enemies of the people. And even she couldn't do that. And I, I found things, you know, it comes back to what Gina said, is you want politicians primarily who are competent and courageous and there was a can lot add, of I, can, can i add, add to that well i think that um I, I
2: think um from because i'm apolitical i speak to politicians from all walks of life but also you know as a campaign i've been speaking to people in all sorts of walks of life when it comes to business as well because business leaders have not been courageous either particularly no, at, at this time um so you know what i found is that uh, it, the two things I found very frustrating, and I think they're beginning to change, which is the positive, is this idea that as women, if we have a voice in, in any walk of life, we should be protecting ourselves. You know, we we, we have to do the work to protect ourselves because we, we want equality, or we want to be in a particular place, you know, we want to be part of of whatever the, um, the the sector we choose to be because we are ambitious and we want to be um, the best that we can be. We want to succeed. We want to have um, positions where we can actually bring in change and policies and reform. But somehow we have to do that while we also take care of ourselves and look after ourselves and, and accept that we'll be open to abuse. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't accept that. And I think there has to be—we um, can't. There has to be an equality of opportunity for women to go uh, to get to the top of all form of all uh, areas of work and society. You know, it is not upon us. I mean, I keep being told this with social media: you have to look after yourself. Well, well, no. Well, I'm sorry. Social media firms should be having a duty of care on us. You know, it, exactly. its this. We, we have to. We shouldn't have to go beyond and above a man to be in the same position as a man to look after our own safety and well-being and health and physical and mental health we we should all be treated the same and i think that's beginning to change because i do think it's a terrible shame i was i was i mean for me politics i'm a politics. i grew up with a, with a father who is very politic uh, was very passionate about politics and and justice and human rights and you know i'm his daughter but uh it, I was really saddened when I saw the number of female MPs who stood down before the last election. Yes. I felt it was, it was a sad indictment in the place that we are in our democracy where women feel that they cannot take their place in parliament because they're too afraid of what the media, what the uh, social media, the, the avalanche of hate that they will be subjected to. That is not right in our democracy to have women feeling that they cannot take their place. So I think that's beginning to change. And I think we have to do more work to protect women in those places and to create a safe working environment for them in wherever they choose to work. I mean, that, that, is, that has to be right. Um, and, and the other thing I'd say is that it, as a woman of color, what I find extraordinary is, is this idea, which I still, of all the things that come back to me, is this view that we're not bright enough. I couldn't possibly be bright enough And I still find that one still stings me, I have to say, because I just think, what does that say about this perception of, you know, how we are viewed as individuals? And I I, I find that one very difficult to assimilate.
1: And
0: that that point you raised there about um, Internet regulation, this is something, Gina, we spoke about before Christmas. And I, I, you know, if I ask you, Anna, what? action do you think is needed, um, or what action do you think the government should be taking when it comes to regulating uh, online spaces? Not only for people in, you know, the public eye, like both of you are, but for everyone else, you know, the bullying that goes online, um, the, just all all of this vitriol that we're seeing, what action can be taken to making online spaces safe? I I
1: have never understood the argument that, these so-called platforms, platforms are platforms and not publishers. They're publishers and they should be subject to exactly the same uh, laws as the publisher of any newspaper. And if that's tough, that's tough. The truth is they don't want to employ the people to read the stuff when, and then act on a duty of care and act as publishers and remove things that no print, no newspaper would ever dream of a publisher. And those newspapers that have online um, editions should have exactly the same and be subjected to exactly the same rules and laws as they are when they churn out their hard copy as they do on their internet platforms. And they simply don't do it because they won't employ the people to look at the online comments and delete things um, and be responsible. So to me, it's very simple, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, whatever they, all these people should be subjected to exactly the same rules. They're publishers. Um, and they, yes, they have a duty of care, but they also have a duty not to um, spread, what well, just like any publisher of a, an editor of a newspaper, uh, would not would not um, publish things that um, incite violence or um, even unpleasantly, they have their own editorial guidelines, their own, if you like, in-house rules, which they should, those Facebooks and all these other so-called platforms should have their own in-house uh, rules and also be subject to regulation and to the, the law, just like any other publisher. I hope that makes sense. So, so it's those three yep. stre-
0: I know
1: you oh, feel and very...
0: Gina, I know you feel passionately about this too. So do you want to come in on that point?
2: Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I I, I was um, lobbying government to bring back the online harms bill this year, not in 2024, which is when they were talking about it and they are bringing it back this year, but it, there are flaws in it and we do need to, talk I mean the the three main ones for me is that in the legislation we don't address the issue of anonymity which is completely ridiculous how can you still remain anonymous and then they brought in this tier system of uh, responsibility depending on the size of an organisation and I think it has to be size plus impact because you can have small organisations or platforms like um, some of the right wing um, uh, uh, platforms which are hate platforms but just because they're small why should they not have the same rules so they have to look at the tier tier system that they're introducing or talking about in the bill Um, and I think there are other issues but I do believe it it, it, they're making it more complicated than it is because it's not the medium it's the message and if the message is one that incites racial violence sexual violence um, harm you know the the laws are out there already we have the legislation in place so it's the medium not the message if it's a bit of graffiti that incited you know, hatred or violence or racism. How is that different from it being on a platform or being in a digital format? It's not. It's it's a different medium. But um, outside of that, I think the legislation also needs to go beyond just the social media platforms. I think it needs to go uh, across fundraising platforms, too, because we know that an awful lot of crime has gone online from offline. So trafficking, sl- modern day slavery, um, drug, de- a lot of these things are hidden behind these crowdfunding platforms. So I'm afraid the pl- there is a, a part of the social media, um, if you like, landscape that's being ignored by legislation that being talked about, which is these crowdfunding platforms. And for me, I'm really passionate about this because, you know, not only do I think it's absolutely the right thing to do, but for five months, GoFundMe, because they're listed in uh, LA, not the UK, allowed a fundraising page which headline said, raising £10,000 to kill Gina Miller. And that was allowed up for five months. And when they were approached by the police, they, because they're in the US, we couldn't do anything, there was no legislation, there was no reason for, the, for them to give the police the details of the individual. It took from October last year to February this year for the police to get the details of the person who set up the bank account. Of course, they had all that information because how else are you going to get? You have to go through, set up your bank account. This person during lockdown got, um, the CPS did take them to court for, um, uh, you know, threatening. It was supposed to be threat to kill and he actually got um, taken for threatening communications and got 200 pounds fine. That was it for five months. And these platforms say that they have algorithms. They've built algorithms that will actually identify this where well, you can't get any any more than kill and hit man in a, t- in a title. So mm-hmm. they don't have algorithms. There is not just, it, duty of care has got to be something that's, that, is, that is brought in, but also they've got to invest in people. They've got to invest in algorithms. They've got to invest in how they keep their users safe. It really is important. And when you talk about financial scams during lockdown, there's been something like a 400% increase in online financial scams coming from a lot of these platforms. So you've got to do something to safeguard the public from the um, hate that is, I call it coding for chaos, that these platforms are allowing. And now, so finally, because I get very upset about this. We were talking earlier about the divisions in society we have identified, I work with a group internationally, and we've identified groups that are sending messages to ethnic minority groups to not take the vaccine that are coming from right-wing groups. Oh my God. Get, which, and this is happening around the globe at the moment. So we've reported these. I mean, there they, we have to clean up the web. We have got to clean up social media. It is being used to In very there are so many positives, but it's being used to poison our society.
1: Yes, it
0: is. And I feel, uh, you know, in this interview, we've spoken about, you know, some of the darker elements of, you know, being engaged politically. But you know, there are also positives. I mean, both of you have, you know, been very outspoken on your beliefs. And Anna, if I turn to you, I know that you've been engaged in politics since, you know, your days at university and, you know, with student activism. So let me ask you to begin with, what drives your political engagement? What motivates you to get involved and to speak up?
1: Well, anybody involved in politics usually gets involved because they want to make change. Um, And often we share the same goals. We just disagree about the means to the end. Um, And that was always a a thread from the, the sensible, pragmatic wing of the Conservative Party and the sensible, pragmatic, Side of the Labour Party, we often used to say, I mean, we we want the same things, but we just disagree about how we get there. Um, I think that things did obviously change for me after the referendum because it wasn't, you know, my political activity wasn't about change, if you like. And I mean, it was an important part of what then span out of it and my desire because I believed and I still believe that politics is broken. But um, I think after the referendum, actually, I, my, unlike, perhaps, perhaps, and I'm not really very sure about this, but unlike, you know, my, I wasn't saying we've got to stop our leaving the European Union. we must stop it at all costs. It's a terrible mistake um, and all the rest of it. I I did think we'd made a terrible mistake. Um, and uh, initially it was how the hell do we mitigate this terrible mistake and get the best outcome from the terrible mistake that our country has made? And then when I looked at all of that and, and sort of My head hurt with it because it was almost impossible to achieve because the only best best outcome was the single market and the customs union. But that had huge downsides to it. The more I thought about things and explored things and talked to people, I came to the conclusion that others had come to before me that we needed to get it back to the British people. And that was a perfectly legitimate, democratic, proper thing to argue. To argue. All I ever did was actually make a case and argue and I voted and I've actually voted to stop Brexit I mean, I could be criticized by many people for that you know I voted to trigger article 50 and I voted for the withdrawal act and so on and so forth so it was my motivation was almost a, just a profound feeling that we'd made a terrible mistake and we were entitled to have a second bite of the cherry and people were entitled now they knew what it looked like to say, I want to rethink, I want that second referendum. Um, and that was my motivation. And it, it, I wasn't motivated any more than Gina by, unlike others, by ideology or some huge passion for the EU. I'd never had any of those things. I was motivated by the fact that I thought our country had made a terrible mistake and it would seriously damage the future of my children, our children and, and their grandchildren.
0: And Gina, I know that your your father has been a big influence in in your life and uh, actually, you know, reading up about you, you know, from a young age, you speak about this, you know, need for justice that you were, you know, uh, I read the story about how you would give um, cookies and your Sunday dress, I think it was, to poorer children near where you live. So could you talk to me about, you know, what motivates you and, what motivated a young Gina Miller to you know speak out and speak up?
2: I don't remember being any different actually <laughs> I was probably I was a really annoying child at school who asked my teachers why all the time and probably drove them all insane um, but my I, I think it is more about you know nature-nurture argument but I was brought up at the knees of, of a father who would come home and talk to me and tell me about why he was human rights lawyer why he was fighting um, for what, why he was doing it and why justice was so important, even far as back as when I was five or six, but he would do it in terms that I could understand. And my mother was somebody who was, quite different. I mean, her lessons uh, to us growing up were, you know, everything you have could be gone tomorrow. So you have to help other people because you might need that help one day. And that, you know, it, 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 and you know, it, nothing comes uh, for free and you've got to work hard. And if you see people who are hurting, it's your duty to help them. And that, those were things that, you know, my entire family are in medics apart from me. And, you know, we, we were brought up that way to to believe that that was the right thing to do but I think my father was he gave me something else is he also used to say to me that he knew that I had the strength to do anything I wanted to do and then when someone tells you that when you're very young and the person you love so much is your father and he tells you you can stand up and be strong you believe it you absolutely believe it and so I have never even when I was because I've gone through lots of failures in my life, um, you know, and I am a survivor of a of, of very bad domestic violence. I've never stopped believing that I actually do have the strength in whatever way to help others. I've just never, ever doubted that. And I just do it. It doesn't have to be big things. It can be whatever. And so I've always throughout my life, I've always sort of tried and stood up to to and, and speak up because when you I don't expect other people to have that strength and I know that many people have strength in other ways but that's the thing I have so I can help them by speaking up for them because everybody has different strengths and I just believe I have that strength and I don't get bullied I don't um, I I don't take it personally when people send hatred to me I try and figure out why Um, I, I just I've just I was brought up that you shouldn't you shouldn't tolerate injustice and you must always speak up I, I, and and I can't explain no, it any other way than that. And there, to, I,
1: I had I had the similar sort of background in the sense of speaking up against injustice. And when you saw things that were wrong, you should not walk walk on by. Um, and I had a, a, something happened to me when I was fourteen, and I, when I should have should have intervened in something, and I didn't. And I and I I hated myself so much for it. I resolved there and then that I would never, ever, ever, ever walk on by ever again.
0: Well, to to conclude our interview, um, something that I always do as all my guests is do a quick fire round. So Anna, I'm going to start with you. So Gina, you've got a bit of a head start here. (laughs) So I invite you to complete the sentence.
1: Oh no. Oh no, I don't. (laughs) I'm hopeless at these things, go on.
0: The greatest misconception about me is
1: that I have a thick skin.
0: (laughs) My biggest regret is?
1: Oh, I've got a few regrets. Politically, my biggest regret is not standing up for the profession which I was so proud to be a member of, um, which was so wonderful to me. uh, And that is the, the criminal bar. And I do regret now. That I did not do more to defend the criminal justice system, which is now on its knees. Um, My old profession of the criminal bar is on its knees. And that is my regret looking back over my time in Parliament. I've got other regrets, I'm sure, but just looking at Parliament, I would say that's a big regret for me. I wish I'd done more.
0: I am most fearful of.
1: Uh, um, I, I don't like being alone. Yeah, I, I don't like being alone. I, my, so that be um, my most big, yeah, and losing. If I lost my girls, you know, that would be the end of my world. So my, my daughters are very as As any parent will say, their children are their most precious things.
0: The hardest lesson I've learned is.
1: This isn't fair because Jean's got it's so much. More no, 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 they're tough questions. The hardest lesson. The hardest, lesson, the hardest lesson which I've still not learned is is, is really when to shut up.
0: <laughs> and, and for me, off, that is my and to finish on a nice one, I am most proud of.
1: Um, my reputation that I I stuck to my beliefs and I fought for what I believed in. And 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 when it, it is when people come up to me. Uh, and say thank you for everything that you did. Um, and those that come up and said, I didn't agree with you, but at least, at least you were true to what you believed in and at least we knew what you stood for. Ina, right
0: you're, in, you're in the hot seat now.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: forgotten all the questions already.
0: <laughs> the, the first one, the greatest misconception about me is?
2: Ooh, there's probably so many. Um, <laughs> that I'm sort of uh, some rich person who does what I do as a hobby, as Andrew Neil said.
0: <laughs> did he say that? Yes, he did. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just, my, my biggest regret is?
2: That I didn't become a barrister, oh, didn't go into the law. I, 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 I mean, I, I studied. No, 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 but, but I, stu- I studied, but I didn't go back because I was attacked and sort of, yeah, I should have gone back.
0: I'm mostly at
2: Um, the future for my children.
0: The hardest lesson I've learned is
2: being a workaholic is to slow down. <laughs> it's to, um, yeah, to say no. It's it's pretty difficult. I mean, I, I do far too much, and I know that. And uh, yeah, that that's still a hard lesson to sort of try and not do too much and
0: to slow down. And finally, I am most proud
2: of. I don't mean, think the most proud, but I think I'm definitely proud of of writing my book, because when I've gone out and about and, and to young persons, to Anna's point, when, you know, I get young women and men come up to me and say, having read your book, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to be different. I'm going to speak up and I'm going to try. And I think just to have inspired somebody to try to. To live a different life and the best life they can is pretty extraordinary.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. You, thank you so much for joining me on Telefriend. And again, just many thanks. Thank you.
2: Oh, it's been brilliant.